Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of Roll for Enterprise. And this week we'll be wondering about what happens to developers. Who is a developer in this year of 2020? It's got a little bit more complicated than it used to be to define exactly who is and is not a developer. And that's probably a good thing on balance, although we'll get into that too. But I think Mike probably has the best perspective to get us started. So Mike, why don't you lead us off? Yeah, thanks, Dominic. I I think, um, you know, we're going through a bit of a a shift in the IT departments out there in uh, in the organizations. And really what's happening is it it all comes around the low-code, no-code movement, which is now kind of morphed into like citizen development. The way I see it, it kind of started as, you know, here are these tools to improve a user's efficiency, maybe automate a task or two and really improve kind of what they're doing. And now it's become these platforms where people can actually build some quite substantial applications using no code or no code. You know, I think one of the most uh, readily available ones would be uh, like if you're on Office 365 and Power Apps. And I think that's starting to change a bit how organizations are built, especially around IT. So what we're starting to see, at least in the businesses, yes, IT departments still have the largest development people in their organizations, but you're starting to see an increase in shadow IT. And let's face it, they're coming out of the shadows and really being empowered by low-code, no-code. And you're starting to see some really big uh, applications being developed. Uh, And we could talk about how robust they are, but it's really putting power into the end user. And, you know, what happened to developers? Yeah, I think it's even who is a developer today. So I'd like to get your perspectives as who's the customer you're selling to now when you start to see this low-code, no-code movement happening in organizations because everybody's a developer now. Yeah, I I have a personal story on that front. I inherited a newsletter that we run internally at my employer uh, where we and the marketing team uh, let the sales team know what we've been up to, what new resources are available for them that they might want to share with their customers. So that was something that had grown organically from when it was a much smaller company. And so it was just a simple Google Doc and everyone got a link to the Google Doc and would go in there and look at it to half a dozen Google Docs with different teams updating them And you get this email and it wasn't always clear what was new, what was not. And so I took this over and my first thought was, hey, we're a company in the data management space. Surely we have something that we can do around here and maybe we can even make a demo app out of it. So I got hold of our uh, developer relations team and I said, hey, would you like to build a demonstration app for this? And they're like, yeah, no. And I tried with a few other teams to see if I could get any interest, but nobody was really willing to to do that or had the, the spare cycles to do it. And Eventually, over the Christmas break, I had a little bit of spare time in my hands. I thought to myself, how hard can this actually be? I don't have to stand up a whole server and a database and a web server and all of this. I can take advantage of these components. I can take advantage of a serverless platform and a managed hosted database and all of these bits and pieces. So I can just write maybe a few lines of glue code and put something together. So long story short, that's exactly what I did. And I was able to build myself effectively a custom content management system for my use case in, uh, let's call it a couple of days end to end, spread out over um, a month or so of actual time because I was doing this in my spare time. This let people sign in, submit their items to a queue, and it let editors go to the queue and validate whether something was useful or not, and do all of these things and send out a newsletter that was much more useful than it had been before. All of this 
was super, super easy for me to do. Now, this still required me to write a bunch of JavaScript. So it's not something that perhaps anybody could step up and do. It still required me to have some sort of backend skill. But I was using components that made it incredibly simple to do that compared to how it would have been a few years before. And take it just a few notches further, we have uh, our sales ops teams that are doing things in Airtable. They're making their data analysis tasks that much more easy and without having to wait and involve someone else and write detailed specifications. So I think that's where the shadow IT thing comes in. It's not so much that people are deliberately going around IT, but that IT is no longer a bottleneck to achieving the results that people are trying to get to in terms of their business goals. The flip side of that, though, is that we're all going to have to think pretty hard about how we enable those people to do the right thing, because I do have a development background. So I was thinking about, you know, how do I version my code? How do I allow for different edge cases, things like that? How do I hand this off to someone else if someone else comes in? Someone who's just trying to satisfy their immediate need and doesn't have a programming background, an IT background, they might not think of that until it's too late. And there are all these famous stories. There's one about the Lehman Brothers uh, during the windup of that. Supposedly, there was this one spreadsheet that the acquiring bank was using to evaluate uh, the value of uh, various Lehman Brothers assets. And because of a calculation error inside the Excel spreadsheet, uh, there was several million dollar discrepancy between the calculated and the actual value of various of those assets. That's the sort of thing that you can run into that you might be able to prevent if there was someone looking over your shoulder saying, hey, hang on, how do you value? validate that this is the right thing? How do you check that? How do you enable other people to help out with the design and development? Yeah, without a doubt, I think legacy apps, you know, have been holding back a lot of customers, their flexibility, the compressed cycles. So I think this changes that. I want to go back to something you said, Mike, shadow IT. I think that term is a little bit outdated. Where is IT? You know, where does all this reside? Mike, I have a question for you. 2018 CFO Council, their annual meeting, their biggest threat to the business, software development, not capital. So it was first time software development. How do you this th- how do you think this ties into that, Mike? I think it's uh, it's challenging for companies, right? Because you know, if we talk about Dominic, what you were talking about, and, and what you were talking about, Zach, is like you, you know, from an IT department, we're looking at a business case, so we may choose not to develop one product, instead develop another. You, you know, you talk about shadow IT. Yeah, these people are going to get fed up because IT keeps telling us no, and they're just going to go figure out how to develop themselves. And, and then, okay, yeah, you might have it unsupported, so on and so forth. The developers and and the cost of developers. Well, guess what? If you start talking legacy systems, like you mentioned, Zach, you know, your best developers are keeping that legacy system up. Chances are that legacy system is so important to your business that it's what is filling your coffers with money. It's what keeps your your cash flow going. And what the other development is doing is either like innovative, bringing into the business and doing all the value add stuff that you can continue to add money to the coffers, but you always kind of focus on the stability. And unfortunately, some of your best developers are keeping that going. Are they so motivated? Are they, you know, it brings up all sorts of questions while the people who are building on the low code, no code. Yeah, they're they're doing like some some pretty amazing stuff. But sure, it isn't, you know, they're not following the same rigor, the same governance as it would in an application development space. But granted, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned, Dominic, like, yeah, it was easy code and maybe not everybody could do that. You know, there are competitions out there where people are trying to do some pretty sophisticated stuff using no code at all, right? So, so trying to write zero lines of code. But I think as 
the skill set of the regular worker in a business continues to evolve, I believe they will get fed up of like, hey, they're going to want to do more and more and more, get fed up with the tools, and then start to learn like one or two lines of code to get better at what they're doing. So I think it will get better. How does it hand off to the future generation or as um, labor changes? That is a, a whole other question. And, and then we have the question around data governance and so on. So I think as we look at IT departments, yes, I think this development is shifting into business, uh, which is maybe better adapted at what needs to be developed and what they need to do. So um, yeah, I think it continues involved. So I would agree we need better developers, but I think everybody needs to become a bit of a coder in the future. And I think that's the future workforce that we're bringing into these organizations. Oh, agreed 100%. So when I say that these people might be lacking those reflexes, what I'm actually saying is we, as people who do have those reflexes, that experience, we have to figure out how to share that with them. So it used to be that people came up through the ranks of, you know, view source code on a web page. Uh, <laughs> yes. Back in the day, that used to give you something useful. <laughs> and you'd be able to imitate that and copy it. Uh, or you'd be rewriting bat files on your DOS box to launch a game with different options. There are all these on-ramps, but they were all fairly technical and they would lead you eventually to writing a Hello World program and going through that process. Uh, these days, I think people are coming to it through very different on-ramps. So view source on a web page is unlikely to give you anything useful these days, anything that you can learn from anyway. And very few people edit batch files <laughs> to launch games unless you're very into retro gaming and that's its own thing. But on the other hand, people get into these workflow systems. They might start thinking about something like If This Then That in the consumer space or Zapier and they start modeling a logical process. So they come at it from the algorithmic point of view and then eventually the process they're trying to model becomes complex enough that, as you say, they start adding a line or two of code and they get into it that way. But because they haven't had that formal training, they miss out on the, this is why you need to version your code. This is why you need to do error checking, uh, all of these types of things. So it's not to say that they're bad people and they should stop doing that. That was the old world that the term shadow IT came out of. I've long said that shadow IT is actually a symptom of an unmet need. These people are going out, they're putting in the effort to meet their own needs, to satisfy their own needs. And we should figure out the way to enable them safely, enable them to do the right thing, make it easiest to, to do the right thing. In the same way that with music piracy, what killed music piracy wasn't harsher and harsher enforcement. It was that it became easier to subscribe to iTunes Music and to Spotify and to all of these services than to mess around trying to download stuff off of Napster. That's the type of mechanism we need to find for these citizen developers. Yeah, and I'm I'm seeing some of these RPA companies being acquired. So I look at Appian, which is a low-code platform um, that I'm very fond of. I think they're doing a great job. And their RPA acquisition back in January. So now, you know, uh, they're actually moving into business automation. And let's be honest, RPA is the fastest growing software category today. So uh, this does have a wide, uh, wide effect. I also think about things like uh, security from an angle of uh, GitHub, for example. I, I think these developers in, in the business, I mean, there are risks, right? Let's let's be honest. Uh, and those risks are security. So you still have to govern the security. Uh, you know, they're out there at GitHub. They're, they're grabbing code from here or there. And so, you know, when you get outside of IT, you're, you're right, Dominic, there has to be uh, some kind of governance and especially with uh, backend as a service. But I think this is the role that IT will play, right? They will they will help with that backend as, as a service, right? That abstraction layer uh, and the data, we, we have to remember the data and securing that data. But 
this is like kind of like to me, it's kind of like a wildfire. I mean, again, it goes from low code, no code. And now this is moving across the business. You're seeing mergers of RPA companies. And it's a matter of time before UiPath and Blue Prism and you know, Automation Anywhere and these guys start start getting into it as well. So I, I think it's an interesting merging of these solution sets. Zach, give give the audience a bit of a definition of, of what you consider backend as a service. Because I think from, from an IT side, we have an impression of it, but I, I think it's really different from, from the industry side and not a lot of companies have thought about it totally. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that whole runtime attraction. It's the storage. You know, typically you would say we're we're creating an app, so you know, we need our database, we need storage. Uh, you know, where are we going to host this? All of that. And so the benefit of being able to move quickly, especially in a no-code environment like serverless, which has its use cases, is this backend as a service, which has been, you know, it was nascent three, four years ago, and it has come a long ways. And so that backend as a service is everything from your storage, uh, you know, to your, again, your hosting, your database management, all of that backend that you would typically have to um I don't know, Mike, what you've seen, but in IT departments that I've worked with have wait weeks or months to get set up. Sometimes they have to buy a new array or takes them a while to provision. There's multiple teams involved. All that goes away. And these developers, you know, typically that, that, and that runtime abstraction also goes away in a serverless environment, if you want to be honest. So to, to, you know, to me and to, and to us and typically in IT, that backend as a service is the entire backend that typically would be set up along with this. And I believe from the IT side, I mean, we have to be enablers to all of this, right? I mean, you could be an IT department that says, no, this will not happen. But to be honest, I mean, look, think of the mentality of like fail fast and, and, and rapid application development. If you're looking at speed, the business cycle compressing, I believe it's kind of almost our duty to empower our end users to at least develop to some extent on their own. What IT departments, I think, need to be focused on in the future is really the data governance um, and really, you know, what will we allow and not allow? I think a lot of companies get worried about who has access to core data and hey, are people really manipulating our data. So, so, so give, you know, release the data tell users how they can use it, empower them. And I think that's a bit of the future. And I think you're right. Shadow IT is kind of like a myth and it's it's got to continue to grow for the future generations of workers coming into the workplace. Yeah, Mike, one quick thing around that is I feel like we stick our head in the sand if we say, oh, it's shadow IT, it's shadow IT. You're almost dis- being dismissive. And that shouldn't be the case because the business has a say. And I, I think they are proving it with this low code, no code. Um, I go back to Appian. There are many others. If you go to serverless, there's AWS Lambda, there's Azure Functions, you know, Google Functions, et cetera. They, they're not selling into IT. So, and people say, well, that's shadow IT, but okay, you know, what is IT? You know, where does IT reside? And that's why when we kicked it off, I was curious what your thoughts were, what you're seeing, because at some point, I think the role of IT has to change. You have to adapt quickly. You can't be a disabler. You have to be an enabler and you have to solve these problems. Dominic said something earlier about a symptom. I, I have said that, you know, cloud is a symptom of IT not doing it right. And so I think that at some point we just have to say, okay, you know, the business they're creating these apps, but we have to put some governance around it. You know, let's go back to GitHub, which, by the way, brilliant acquisition by Microsoft, one of many brilliant acquisitions. Um, you know, there's shared passwords, there's all sorts of things. So, you know, while they don't have the IT background, they are going to make some mistakes and we have to be there to support them. But, you know, this notion of shadow IT that I keep hearing, I, I think it's uh, I think it's run its course. I mean, what, what is IT? We have to define that. Yeah, and I, I think um, you're absolutely right. I think what low code, no code has done is it's removed the barrier to to entry of 
people wanting or regular employees wanting to do, um, you know, big things. I, I think from an IT perspective, like I said, our, our job is to enable and be somewhat a consultant to uh, the business in, in these scenarios. Uh, and it will continue to um, to happen in that way. If we dig our hand, head in the sand, then the business will just do it and we won't know. And I think that that dialogue has to be established. Now, you know, if you talk about governance and, you know, things getting too big, like the Lehman Brother issue that you spoke about, Dominic, I think there is a point where an application gains so much value, so much worth in the business that it will be passed on to IT to put some governance around it. And that's fine. I know a lot of my colleagues would really dislike that and think it's, you know, being thrown over the fence at them. But I think this is where, you know, okay, we've done the value. It's almost like everything running is a is a proof of concept. And then it's like, oh, wow, this has real value in this organization. We need to protect it and move it to IT and let's figure out a council or, or some way to, to govern it. And I think that that needs to become an acceptable mindset around IT where it's more of this, you know, no, 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 that everybody wants to, to tell uh, the business. But I think that's just uh, limiting the business, to be honest. Yeah, because for most types of coding, unless you're doing something pretty esoteric, the value is in what is being modeled in the code. And the code is only as valuable as it is accurate in its model of the business process that, uh, that it's representing. The experts in business processes are typically not coders and vice versa. So anything that we can do to smooth that communication and to make it easier to model business processes is going to be a win for the enterprise. If we can take out those bottlenecks, that friction uh, will be that much better off. I lost, in my little newsletter story, I lost about a month of calendar time in going around asking other people to do the work and writing up specifications that were eventually turned down. If I jumped straight in and done the work, I could have launched a month earlier than I did. The only reason that I didn't do that was because I had this deference. I thought, no, I have to, I'm not a real developer. I have to ask someone else uh, to do this work for me because my title is not developer. I haven't, I've never worked as a professional developer, even though I have a comp sci degree. And so th this ended up being a bottleneck to doing that. If I hadn't had those skills, I might never have done it at all. And then the business would have missed out on the value as small as it is, uh, modestly, uh, of the thing that I built. And how many stories are there like that out there? That people have an idea, they see uh, some sort of bottleneck, they see some friction in their daily work, and they know perfectly well the logic of how that could be removed, how that could be addressed. They just don't have the technical skills to do it, or they don't have the budget to acquire a huge commercial platform uh, that will enable that. If those features start to be built in, the workflow engine and Salesforce is starting to be pretty powerful. If there are quick and easy ways to get started building something with a free evaluation license or whatever of these SaaS tools, and then once you've proven the value, you can step that up to more users, more data, more throughput, whatever the licensing model is. We're already seeing that starting to unlock more and more value for the users. Do you, I mean, if we look at developers, what's your guys thinking on the future of developers? Like, are we, if we look at the cost of developers, is what, what way do you think that's going to go? And do you think developers need to have a bigger breadth of knowledge with everything happening? Or do you think it's, you know, like a specialization then? So, so like specialization and cost, what's your thinking here? 
I think they they have to get closer to the business. I think you touched on it. Instead of Dominic, they have to know the business. So I don't know that it's a matter of cost as it is aligning with the business and understanding the business, especially now. Everything we're talking about is bringing these apps closer to the end user, right? Whether it's at the edge or not. You look at Google Firebase, you look at uh, Microsoft Azure and some of the things they're doing with this no-code, low-code movement. I I think the question is, Mike, where do these developers come from, these next-generation developers? And if you're an existing developer, how can you align with that business or get closer? Yeah, no, I agree with what you said. That's that's going to be the key to be able to be closer to the business. For most developers, the value is not being the hardest core, you know, Linux kernel development, network stack development. There are relatively few developers like that in proportion. The value of IT is if more and more people can use it and can extract full value from it. And that means not being just passive users, but taking part in defining their workflows and implementing automation to help them out in their day-to-day. It used to be there was a high barrier to entry. It required you to learn at the very least a scripting language, perhaps a full-on programming language. You had to be familiar with data formats. You had to do all sorts of things to get over that hurdle. And very few people had the will or the time or whatever combination of other characteristics to get over all of those hurdles. And it's becoming easier and easier. All of these are being knocked down. And part of it is also technologies that are available to, in inverted commas, real developers. So for instance, serverless functions they save enormous amounts of time if you're coding because you don't have to stand up an environment where your code can run. You can rely on a serverless environment and just call your function. Uh, But that sort of environment also enables people who might not be coders or might not be using even a traditional programming environment to call your little brick, your little function, uh, just knowing its inputs and its outputs from perhaps a workflow engine or something like that. And so it enables many more people to participate. It democratizes the access to software Uh, in a way that we're only just starting to see the earliest fruits of. I think there's so much more to go in this front. Does this endanger the role of developers? I don't think so. As with most of these transformations, it will involve a change in the role of developers, absolutely. And certain developers who do not accept this change, don't like it, don't want to roll with it, they may find themselves in difficult positions. But that's been the case for every transformation. And there are still roles and opportunities for people to do the sorts of jobs they were doing before. Uh, There are still a ton of jobs in mainframes, uh, for instance. Uh, The fact that we have newer types of databases that are NoSQL and all of these uh, different varieties even of NoSQL databases uh, doesn't mean that the skills of a relational DBA have gone away. There is still potential to do that. It's just going to be a little bit different in the way that's valued. And once again, it's going to go back to How close can you be to the business? It can't be this priesthood up in an ivory tower denying the value of the users just because they don't have the the technical background. It's going to be, for the future, a much more collaborative conversation where people are working together, pooling skills, pooling resources, pooling their understanding to achieve a common goal. Yeah, I want to add one last thing real quick. Everybody talks about digital transformation in IT, which makes sense. There's a lot of that going on. But I think this is really business transformation. So, and Mike, you talk about this a lot, so I'd love your thoughts. But I think what we're talking about is much different than just traditional IT. This is a much bigger transformation. This truly is business transformation. Because it's business-led. Yeah, the important part is the business, not the digital. 
which is much more disruptive. I, and I think you're starting to see a divide within within the business and the business users, right? There are going to be, you know, whether you call them developers or not, there's going to be people with development skills within the business. Those who, who have them and can use them will start to kind of stand out. So you're right. It, it's like it's business transformation. It's how the business operates, you know, and I hate to say it, but I think to some extent, IT loses value. What I worry about and kind of what Dominic touched on, like all these SaaS applications, you, you know, the power of a corporate credit card. Oh, Oh my, the power of a corporate credit card. Somebody going out and acquiring uh, Azure um, or or AWS and charging it on their corporate credit card or any other SaaS app, that's where the challenge really comes to like an IT department. But you're absolutely right. Like the business can control it. The business can take it. I think IT needs to kind of protect and it starts to become a risk compliance thing on, on our side about, okay, what are people doing? How are they doing it? You know, before you start to have um, a bit of craziness happening, but you know, if you keep saying no, no one will talk to you about it. And if people are at least talking to you about it, you can guide and consult. And, and that's where it becomes a bit challenging. But definitely the business is in the driver's seat. They've always been in the driver's seat. I think there's a reluctance of IT organizations to accept that the business is in the driver's seat. That, that's how I would I would see it. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree here. Yeah, and those are the IT organizations that are endangered, the ones that don't accept that. If you tell the business no, they're going to do it anyway, because they are the ones that bring the dollars, and that's the bottom line. We're all in business to achieve whatever goals uh, the business has, no matter our title. If the business isn't achieving its goals, even if you've done your IT perfectly, you're still going to be in a whole lot of trouble, and that's not ideal. So if you can work with the business and say, okay, you want to do this and that, let's figure out how to do it in a way that's safe. Let's enable single sign-on. Let's make sure that we have two-factor authentication. Uh, let's uh, do these things. Between these two tools that are equivalent for your purposes, I'm going to analyze them, and I'm going to make you a recommendation of one of them on the basis of some expertise that I can bring to the table. And that way, you're no longer this the department of no, as IT is often known, you're starting to be an actual partner. And that's going to be a much more constructive relationship that you can have. Everyone gets what they need. Everyone does what they want. IT also gets out of the business of all of this busy work. I've long said, if you have to put hands to keyboard for a routine request, something's wrong somewhere. Back in the day when I was a sysadmin, if I was asked to do something more than twice, I would write a script to automate that. I did not want to be doing that. My ideal day at work was one in which I didn't do anything because that meant I'd done my job right. I'd foreseen all of the situations that could arise and you know that never happened. There's always something, there's always some random exceptional request because that's the nature of business. But if you're rushed off your feet just keeping up with the routine, you're not going to be able to deal with the emergency, the unexpected, the unforeseen, or the sudden business opportunity. If every time the interest rate changes, you have to manually go into the database and update a value, then you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage to the other insurance company across the street, which has an automated process to pull that from some government feed and pipe it right into their quoting engine and push that out to their agents. And I, I've heard of companies or, or you know IT workers joke around about you know spending uh, a week or two to automate like something that takes them that they do like 10 minutes every month right and it might sound excessive but to be honest if you don't if you can forget about it in the future uh then it just becomes much more easier and i think that mentality that used to be in the it departments where they'd automate maybe the simplest task and then it becomes a more elaborate task i think that's in the business now because they are empowered with all the tools everything coming at them and and what we see in the market right 
But also for the IT team. I mean, back in the day, so we're talking the turn of the century now, when I was a sysadmin, I wrote a piece of code and it was actually a fairly major project to let people sign into an Apache web server running on HPUX using their Windows domain credentials. This was even before Active Directory. Uh, at the time, that was a... I mean, for me, it was definitely non-trivial, but it, it definitely wasn't out of the box uh, to do that. These days, that's something that is just so completely taken for granted, you wouldn't even mention it as a line item in your project planning. This mechanism doesn't just advantage people who are not developers, it also advantages people you are. A rising tide lifts all boats, but that means that the sorts of things that you are doing 10, 15, 20 years ago, and at the time we're adding value, these days they're table stakes or they're automated or someone else is already doing them. And you should be putting your skills to work at a different level, at a different layer of the stack. The abstraction has moved up several notches. Yeah, you know, Zach, you spoke about kind of GitHub and all this. And, and you know, it's it's kind of like the ultimate uh, kind of toolbox to pull out someone else's code, reuse it. H- how do you How do you feel about from your company or a company, one of your employees putting your code on GitHub. I, I think everybody talks about GitHub being so good, but what about the other way? Because to what Dominic spoke about, yeah, you know, it, it helps, but yeah, there's a, a, a bit of a risk there. And I, I think I'm I'm a bit cautious on, on the whole GitHub side, right? I think it's problematic, um, to tell you the truth. I mean, not just from a security perspective, but from a coding perspective, uh, it's, share, it's share code. That's what it is. It's shared code. And, you know, people are out there and they're grabbing bits and pieces. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's problematic. Um, and it's across the board, IT out into the business. Yeah, you know, there's good and bad with GitHub, but Again, it comes back to, and I think this is what we have to think about going forward is, is how do we place policies and procedures and, and just, you know, some structure around all of this, right? The security, you know, the back end. I think that's where we need to focus and really the operational focus of all this, as opposed to saying, no, let's take that energy and let's focus it on how can we help. Uh, educate them and have them understand the impacts of this, the impacts of going out there and all the shared passwords that might be out there and everything else. Um, And then I want to add one thing that we were just talking about. I think COVID-19's effect on uh, business uh, should not be understated here. You know, low code and no code, uh, there are several companies well-documented. Fortune had a good article about, uh, you know, being able to uh, turn up an application in a couple of days for a website that was selling PPE, you know, and they things went through the roof. And so that agility is powerful, really impactful. And so there was no time for IT to say, no, we can't do that. Or for software developers to say, hey, we can have you that application in three months. And uh, this is what's different now in the world. Um, But to answer your question on GitHub, uh, we have to focus on the procedures, policies, and and governance. Speed has really changed everything. I think when when you start talking speed and how fast businesses need to it, I mean, you know, uh, how fast you can get to point A might determine your market market share. And I think that's where sometimes IT departments lose sight. So great point there, Zach, I think. No, I agreed 100%. It's also important, though, not to focus too much on the downsides, because there are also enormous advantages from doing it in this way. And I may be biased because I'm currently working for an open source company. The main point is, though, it's very definitely possible to move 
very, very fast. And some of the cultural changes that were required have been accelerated in lockdown. And again, we've seen that at work. Uh, we've seen situations where we previously struggled to get into companies because they were very top down. They were very, oh, we have to architect this very carefully. We have to plan and then we'll execute across huge teams that have to be kept in sync with very heavy processes. And during lockdown, that simply wasn't possible. And so much smaller teams were just picking up whatever ball they saw and running with it and producing these really impressive results and very useful results to their, their business counterparts. That, that's a good point because I think still today, a lot of these tools get marketed to IT departments. And I think really the, the target audience becomes an entire organization. And, and that's, I think, a, a, a miss from a lot of these enterprise players because I might know the tools. People might ask me about the tools if they start to research them. But I think uh, the access to information or to, yeah, I, I would say enterprise tools that the business has is not as vast as IT. And that I think is uh, is holding potentially some companies back, right? Because they're still targeting getting the wrong audience in, in traditional IT. Yeah, definitely. And going back to a previous conversation that we had on the podcast, good salespeople will understand that. So I've taken on this new role, in, which involves me going around salespeople and asking them what made them successful in certain deals and certain opportunities. The good salespeople are the ones who will talk to me and they've been talking for 20 minutes and they still haven't mentioned a feature of our products. They've been talking about the customer demands, their need, uh, their situation, the problems they were having with the previous approach. And they've gone through all of that in huge amounts of detail. They understand it intimately. And then eventually it gets to the last 30 seconds and it's obvious why they needed our product. It just slots right in. It satisfies that need. Bam, done. And you can see exactly what made them successful, what made their customers successful, because there was that very, very deep alignment with a business need, not with some IT feature function request, an RFP, etc. That may come later, but beforehand, you need to have the, the business process and the understanding of it. Absolutely agree. I think this has been a, a great conversation. Lots more to talk about. I think uh, we can see that every week privacy uh, plays in there. But thank you very much, guys. This has been great. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I think it's a good topic. I think we'll touch on it again in one form or another in the near future. I'm sure we will. Anyway, it's been a very interesting conversation as ever. For those of you listening, please do get in touch through our various social channels. And we will talk to you again next week. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.